0: The repurposing of houses of worship has become a trend across the United States. As congregations face dwindling numbers, they're often left with the choice of selling the buildings they can no longer afford or finding new uses for them. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. On this week's episode, we're looking at what happens when a dying church takes on a new life. Our first guest is Greg Cutler. He's the village planner for the village of Mamaroneck in Westchester County. He's here to share his insight into the adaptive reuse of houses of worship. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. So let's talk about adaptive reuse, which I guess is the technical term, right? That's correct. What does it mean exactly? So
1: adaptive reuse is looking for ways to really upcycle buildings and put them to good use. So in particular, we're looking at older buildings that may be historic and integral parts of the neighborhood, integral pieces of the neighborhood. And so we're trying to have them be reused under different uses that they might not have been intended for so that the structure can,
0: can remain intact and that historic character can remain intact. Yeah, I was going to ask the question: Why is that important, as opposed to knocking it down and building a new? Yes,
1: exactly. So, so the way we thought about it, at least in the village of Mimernick, uh where I work, is we think of these, particularly these institutional buildings, schools, churches, as as memory. They're part of the collective memory of the neighborhoods, and and so many people who have grown up in our community, um, it's a part of their daily life, and and it represents the past. Um, so preserving those buildings is, is very important to that. Um, but beyond that, there's, a, a number of benefits from adaptively reusing buildings instead of tearing them, instead of tearing them down in terms of, uh, environmental concerns. So, um, and that's why I use the, the term upcycle. When, when you are using an existing building, it takes that much less, um, resources to bring it up to a different type of use. So you're using less timber, um, you don't have to mine as many things to to support that building for a foundation. Um, so we find that to be a, an important aspect of this as well.
0: So how do you determine what you can repurpose a building into, such as a church, for instance? What makes that a good space for what?
1: Uh, that's a that's a really interesting question, and I think it really boils down to every individual site and and. What that building lends itself to. So, in the village of Amerenik, um, the recent adaptive reuse that we had was was a church, and surprisingly enough, it's now a swim school. Um, so, you know, the the spectrum of what it can be is is very wide. You know, in the law that that we adopted, so we we made a law that encourages adaptive reuse, so we can speed up the approvals for reusing the buildings, um, as to discourage. You know, raising a building and, and rebuilding anew. So what we have did is we've included uh, senior housing as one of the options that, that someone can use because we know there's a real need for, for senior housing in our community and many other communities in the tri-state area.
0: So what does that law say specifically to incentivize this type of repurposing? So
1: what it does is, as, as you may know, municipalities in this region, most of them have zoning, pretty much all of them have zoning. And a lot of these institutional buildings, they they were built, a lot of these churches were built well before zoning ever existed. And so uh, the conditions that we have on these properties would be considered non-compliant, non-conforming. So when you want to introduce a new use, you run into problems bringing it up to, con- to compliance. So essentially what we did was we created a new pathway where you go to our just our planning board and they can modify some of those requirements that are prescribed by zoning if it encourages the building to be reused and, and the architecture to be kind of maintained. So we do allow some modifications to the exterior architecture, but it has to be reviewed by this board, by the planning board, and determined to be sensitive to the original character.
0: So what can you tell me about that church that is now a swim school?
1: It looks very much the same from the outside. In that case, we didn't have this law in place, so that went through a very long and tedious approval process. Um, but at the end of the day, it did improve the the actual site itself. So the building was maintained pretty much the same, but we did manage to um, incorporate some green infrastructure aspects to the, the new site design. So there's um, pervious pavers that allow water to flow through the parking lot, um, which is a net benefit
0: for the site. So there is now a pool where there was once pews. Is that fair to say?
1: Uh, yes, that's exactly that's exactly what happened there.
0: That's pretty remarkable. I mean, to think about from the outside, you yeah. still think people are going to mass. It's quite amazing. Yeah. So yeah. when that happens, and you know, they I guess the church obviously must have seen its congregation dwindle, uh, no longer a use for that particular institution. Yes, that's correct, and that's a trend that
1: has happened in the village of Emerynck, not just on this property, um, and it's a trend really nationwide, and it's particularly pronounced in the Northeast, where we see um, memberships in churches and synagogues going down. Each generation, less people are attending um, uh, religious institutions. And so uh, addressing what we do with these buildings is key to a lot of places. It's not just the New York region. There's going to be a lot of vacant um, religious buildings that may be put to good use or demolished and and something else would go in their place but whatever the situation there will be a lot of vacant properties
0: what happened in this instance did the church sell to the swim school do you know what the backstory is here that's correct the
1: church sold to the swim school the property was split zoned so it was half in a commercial zone half in a residential zone so they had to go and get a change in the law from our elected officials And then once the law was changed, then they had to go through the planning board, our coastal commission, as well as the Board of Architectural Review.
0: So from your perspective, is it largely maintaining the historical integrity just so from the outside it doesn't look any different? What's the thinking behind that when something like this comes to a planning board? That's exactly it. It's
1: been maintained exactly the way it looked before. And in fact, it's kind of brought up a little bit because the site was cleaned up. It was vacant for many, many years. We had reports of of rodents, you know, going in and out of the the building. And and so, you know, rather than this building come down and maybe an apartment building go up in its place, uh, we felt that this was an appropriate way forward for the site.
0: You referenced something earlier that I think is Pretty interesting in terms of mindset and how people see things, and the emotional connection that people have to buildings. So uh, this church that is now a um, you know a swim school. You can still walk past it and tell your grandchild, your great grandchild, hey, that's where uh, grandpa was baptized or, you know, that's where, you know, your mom was confirmed. So you don't you don't lose that. And I guess that's part of this, right? Oh, absolutely. It,
1: it's part of it. And and just having the building there, you don't have to go and look into a textbook and, and, you know, find out, oh, what was on that on that property? You can see it right there. It's with your own eyes. And it's part, that's why we kind of say it's it's part of our collective memory,
0: because you can see it. So as a planner, I mean, what do you make uh, of this? I and mean, I've seen a lot of these repurposings. I've been to a bed and breakfast that was once a church. And when I was in college, I used to dance at the Limelight in Manhattan, which was mm-hmm. a church. So what, what is your, as a planner, and you see this sort of transformation, what do you what do you think of this trend that we're seeing in this repurposing?
1: It's kind of reacting to a trend. And, and I think the most appropriate way to, to do this is is to react the way in which we are because, you know, for better or for worse, um, we know that memberships are going down. And so how do we best and most efficiently make use of these properties and and kind of protect their history and preserve the buildings at, at the very least so that future generations can... Can see this architecture, can experience these buildings, um, whether it be walking by, driving by, or going to a program, or going to have wine, or what, what have you in any of these buildings. I think it's, it's an important method moving forward is to reuse these buildings.
0: When you looked at uh, how these other communities have been handling this, whether it's Yorktown and the uh, the church that's now a wine bar, or um, Hastings, where now there's a church that's sort of like, like in some ways, like a, a, a music venue or a, you know some sort of performance venue, uh, anything that's particularly different about how they approached it to then how you approached it uh, in Mamarinek?
1: You know, a lot of these were kind of single instances. So what we tried to do is we looked at our our first one, the swim school, and, and we thought, well, we know that we have 14 other religious buildings in our community, and, and we don't know how long they're all going to be occupied. We knew that a couple of them had already been laying fallow for several years. And, and so that's why we took this holistic approach to to encourage the adaptive reuse. So I think we'd have to go to each of those communities and really find out their mindsets about adaptive reuse in general, but I don't believe that there's been, um, at least not to my knowledge, in some of these smaller communities, this kind of approach as of yet. But we are trying
0: to proselytize it. So Yours is long term planning. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much for coming in and sharing your insight on, uh, on this type of reuse. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Greg Cutler is the village planner for the village of Mamaronek in Westchester County. For more on the repurposing of religious buildings, we turn now to Robert Simons, a professor of urban planning and real estate at Cleveland State University. He has a book out called Retired, Rehabbed, Reborn, the adaptive reuse of America's derelict religious buildings and schools. Robert, what inspired you to look into this idea of repurposing houses of worship into things like restaurants and B&Bs?
2: Well, I was actually uh, talking to a retired friend of mine, and he wanted something to do, and we talked about uh, a book we could write. I had read it, at that point written um, three books, so I was looking for another book project, and he suggested we do it on shopping malls. I suggested dead churches, so he said fine. Then we ended up picking up uh, also schools along with the dead churches. It's interesting that you call them dead churches. May they rest in peace. <laughs> but be reborn.
0: Now, only churches did you look into, or did you look into other houses of worship as well?
2: All houses of worship and also uh, schools, usually elementary schools, but sometimes also junior high school and high schools as well. And a lot of times the uh, church or religious buildings will have schools as an annex on their property, so it's not unusual to have that as part of the mix.
0: So what makes these old buildings desirable to people, what are those types of details that they're looking for to repurpose them into things like inns and coffee shops?
2: Well, there's different things. First of all, the uh, city planners and people that don't have a direct financial stake in the building will probably want to have it retained in some form, the outside of it at least, so they can navigate around town in terms of the landmarks and being familiar with it, and it's comforting to have it there. Then you've got the uh, financial developer, They, they want a rate of return. It might be a not-for-profit developer that they have to break even, so they need some kind of financial return, and usually these projects require a fair amount of subsidy depending on the end use. Some kind of tax credits is typically what's been applied lately. And then as far as the end users, in other words, the tenants, whether it's uh, retail or microbrewery or office space or more likely condominiums or apartments, they want to retain the beautiful touches of uh, the building, pretty much the ceiling finish, the molding, and the stained glass, and maybe a little bit of the grandeur of the place. Now, for this
0: project, you looked at specific examples, right? Yeah, we had about 10 case studies. Now, where? All over the country?
2: We had one in New York, one in... uh, two in St. Louis, two in Arkansas, two in Ohio, three in Ohio, actually, and uh, a couple other places. uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. So, we tried to Have all the different time zones represented.
0: Let's hone in on New York for a moment. What was the example from New York that you have in the book?
2: It was in Queens, New York. It was a church that was repurposed into a beautiful performing arts center. And uh, the interesting thing about that deal is, it made no economic sense at all. It was a pure culture play. The city of New York has an incredibly large budget for projects like this because New York is, you know, New York's New York. It's a hell of a town. And uh, the Bronx is up, and the batteries down. But in this particular instance, uh, they th- they spent about twenty-five million bucks to get a dollar a year in rent, and uh, it was purely for the benefit of the neighborhood to up its cultural quota.
0: Yeah, that's not the greatest rate of return, except when you're looking at the rate of return as benefiting your community,
2: right? Exactly. But I just want to point out that the twenty-five million dollars for one project is roughly equivalent to what the city of Cleveland has for its entire community development block grant budget stripped down. I mean, to put all those, uh, you know, eggs in one basket, it just would be unfathomable out here beyond the Hudson River. Mm.
0: What would you say is the most interesting repurposing that you've come across?
2: Probably a climbing wall. There's a project, it's called Urban Crag, it's in Dayton, Ohio. And they took the sanctuary space and made a climbing wall out of it.
0: Hmm.
2: Very low budget, low tech, quite clever. Another good one is uh, in Boston, the St. Peter's and Paul Church. Uh, It was made into a condominium, but they did not go with historic preservation tax credits. They went purely market so they could do what they wanted. They had views of downtown Boston from the building. It was a beautiful building, and uh, they just built a whole new building inside that and did quite well with it.
0: Of the examples that you outline in this book, which would you say had the greatest pushback from a community?
2: Anything that has a major change of land use, probably the one in St. Louis, where they took a church, and the church was unsavable. And they ended up tearing it down and and putting up a housing project there on 25 lots on the property. That probably had the most resistance because you're taking it completely away from its original use, converting it to housing.
0: Yeah, I would think that for a community, especially for those who do remain in the community, even though the house of worship may close, that just seeing the building there is a sense of comfort. Or if it becomes an inn, you could actually go stay in your old church. You know, you could still pass by and say, that's where grandma, grandpa got married.
2: Exactly right. And that's the landmark idea that even if you're not a direct stakeholder, you're not a member of the congregation or maybe not even a neighbor, maybe just drive by that road, you know, on that road periodically. It's comforting to see it there. And, you know, some places like Boston, roads never go straight. It's not like New York City where, you know, you're in of fifth and third or something like that. I mean, the roads are twisty and windy and you use landmarks as the road changes names five times in three miles. And, you know, make a left at the church, the white church there on the corner. What would you say were the chief questions you were seeking
0: to answer in this project?
2: Well, we wanted to know what the likely outcomes were and what strategies were useful for accomplishing those outcomes. So what we found was that uh, probably apartments were the most common use. When This is when a building actually changes use. And then the second most common was condominiums and then retail and office were following those. And then special uses like uh, performing arts center or, or cultural were also possible but less likely.
0: I would imagine that this is not going to slow down anytime soon as we continue to see dwindling congregations.
2: Apparently you're right. I mean we have uh, surprisingly uh, we uh, people in America are less religious than they used to be. It's stabilized in the in the 60 percent but I just saw a, some poll just in the last couple of weeks that said it was more like in the 50s and then people that were uh you know in younger, may say younger than 40 we're less likely than older people to be religious and engaged. And for me, it was uh, when I had my kids, that's when I started to become more religious. So maybe they just haven't got to that point yet. So yeah, there's probably fewer people practicing religion of any kind. But the other thing that's interesting, people are getting a lot of satisfaction on social media or mega churches. So there's different ways to get that religious feeling. You don't have to be physically in, in, uh, in the same place. And it could be that we'll have maybe not such a large decrease in number of people that are practicing religion, though we seem to be having that, but we're because instead of having you know hundred people in hundred churches, you might have you know s- several m- mega churches with with a thousand people, and way fewer congregations. So I would imagine that the small to medium sized buildings, especially in the inner suburbs of cities, would probably become uh, surplus next.
0: After doing this project, have you noticed that you now have selective visioning? You will notice these old houses of worship now turn into different things when you're
2: out and about in different places? I do it every time. Every every time I drive down the road looking for a repurposed church or synagogue or or a school site. Yeah, so many different ways
0: to uh, turn an old house of worship into something, something new. Well, the book is Retired, Rehabbed, Reborn, the Adaptive Reuse of America's Derelict Religious Buildings and Schools. Thanks so much for your time. Have a great day. Robert Simon is a professor of urban planning and real estate at Cleveland State University. Here in New York, the New York State Council of Churches wants to prevent distressed houses of worship from being sold and turned into luxury housing, and trendy eateries. Executive Director Reverend Peter Cook says his organization works with congregations to renovate and improve their property to further their mission. That means building things to benefit the community, like affordable housing. Peter, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So give us a little bit of background on the New York State Council of Churches. New York State Council of Churches started as
3: the New York Sunday School Association in the late 19th century, and it was really um, formed to help congregations um, often rooted in the social gospel to try to affect um, positive change on their communities and on national politics.
0: So what specifically are you doing these days to help ensure that folks here in New York have an affordable, safe place to live?
3: Well, uh, one of the things that we do a lot is, um, you know, try to advocate for housing policies and funding that we think are going to be favorable to building affordable housing. So, for instance, uh, at the state level, there was a commitment to build um, uh, multiple thousands of units of supportive housing. And the state has kicked in some funding for that. But now we're pushing to have more funding come in. And, uh, you know, also advocating certainly at the federal level as well. We've seen lots of cutbacks in terms of investment in public housing uh, and an overall cutback in the federal commitment to building affordable housing across the country.
0: So outside of advocating, how can Houses of Worship themselves be a part of the solution?
3: Well, one of those... Um, we, we put together what are called Who is My Neighbor seminars, and what we say to congregations who are invited to come to these seminars are really um, three basic things. Number one is that you really, as a congregation, have to get out of your four walls and meet your community. You need to get to know your neighbors. You need to know what people are doing around you. And then the second is to really advocate for um, laws and policies in your community that can discriminate against people. So, for instance, uh, we have um, a long, sad ha- history of um, redlining that is outlawed now, but it still is the gift that keeps on giving, if you will, which really put in place uh, segregation. And then there are also, Forces that try to gentrify a community, which can really displace people. So we think that um, faith communities really need to uh, advocate for just policies um, that allow for affordable housing development. And then the final thing that we work with congregations on is, once they've done those two things, how do they use their own property to... um, be a blessing on their community. Uh, And that can mean building affordable housing, it can mean also um, creating childcare centers or schools or community spaces or having uh, a use of their building for the arts, Uh, and to really think creatively about how they can do that mission-centered work to have their buildings be fully used to um, reach out to their community. We work with um, a group called the Interfaith Affordable Housing Collaborative, which gives um, small uh, recoverable grants to congregations to be able to do their due diligence, to hire an attorney, to do an assessment of their property, um, and prepare themselves to eventually put out Um, a request for proposals, and RFP. Um, And so through these uh, workshops, these Who Is My Neighbor workshops, we walk congregations through these steps that they need to take. So before they pick up a phone to call a developer, um, they need to do some very important pre-work. And that's what we help walk congregations through.
0: So is there another project here in New York City that you're offering guidance on now that you can talk about?
3: Yes, there's a a congregation in Brooklyn right now um, in um, Bed-Stuy that I think has a really fantastic vision to be able to build affordable housing and also um, put together a um, cultural center. Which would help to highlight um, gospel music. Uh, And so we bring the arts together with meeting an affordable housing need. Um, And um, when we were together last night in uh, Brooklyn and we're looking at these community plans, one thing that the residents really said was that we need places where we can meet. We need places that can celebrate who we are as individuals and that there is, and as institutions, and that within Bed-Stuy there's such a rich history of gospel music. And so whenever we um, do development, we want to be sure that it's actually meeting the needs of the residents who are there uh, instead of just having it be an agent for displacement. Um, You know, many residents spoke of the need to have uh, restaurants that they could afford to eat in, or places where their children could play, or affordable places where they could shop. And, um, you know, as one said, you know, it's hard to think about taking your family to a restaurant, you know, with $25 entrees and white tablecloths and candlelight to appeal to a demographic of people who really are not in that neighborhood. And so it can really, if you don't think about how to do development in a way that really speaks to the needs of people within that community, you can become another agent for gentrification. And this is a real problem within New York City. Sometimes people will come in and say, you know, hey, we're going to build affordable housing. Well, affordable for who? You know, sometimes affordable can be like 100% of average median income, which would far, far exceed the income that so many people actually have within that community. And so it brings in people from the outside. That's nothing wrong with that, but it has a way of pushing up property values and displacing people even more, which pushes them out into the suburbs or into the farther reaches of the boroughs.
0: So again, from your perspective, better to have the church remain involved than sell the property outright to a developer because then there's more control to make sure that this development is going to serve the needs of the community.
3: That's correct. I mean, the church needs to be able to exercise some control whether they hold on to the property or sell it to ensure that what they um, end up doing is not going to push up property values so much that the very people that attend their congregations can't attend because they can't afford to live in the neighborhood anymore.
0: How big of an issue in New York now is dwindling congregations, and how much of an impact is that having on the actual infrastructure, the buildings themselves? Is it a big problem statewide?
3: It is. I mean, the New York State Council of Churches represents congregations all over the state of New York, about 7,000 congregations in rural, uh, urban, and suburban areas. And you will find dwindling congregations in all of these places, churches that close every month because they just can't sustain their property given a dwindling membership some of that has to do particularly in upstate with um, population decline uh, you know economies that have been devastated by you know factories and businesses moving out to you know, other states, um, a shrinking farm economy where there's just fewer people needed to be able to support our farms. So that is a dynamic we certainly find in upstate. Um, You know, in New York City, we have a much greater um, population uh, and a much more vibrant economic landscape. But I think There are a lot of people out there who feel disaffected by organized religion, who really don't want to have much to do with it. And um, there's just a lot of congregations out there competing for a shrinking pool of people um, who might be interested in becoming a part of a faith community. Um, And we really just want to encourage congregations to reach out to their neighborhoods and Um, to reclaim their original mission, which is to be a blessing on others and to have their buildings truly be a blessing on the community.
0: Peter Cook, thank you so much for coming in.
3: You're welcome. Thank you.
0: Reverend Peter Cook is the executive director of the New York State Council of Churches. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. If you liked this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to Cityscape on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen to Cityscape on Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at WFUVCityscape to stay up to date between episodes. Thanks so much for listening.